Well, it's always a, it's always a privilege to sing with you, to worship with you. You can grab your Bibles and open to First Peter. We're going to jump back into First Peter this morning. And if you uh, don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the chair Bibles. It's page 954. It's where we'll be this morning. We'll be uh, picking back up in chapter 3, 1 Peter. And so if you haven't been with us, um, if you're new here this morning, my name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're studying through this, this short New Testament book called 1 Peter. It's our pattern as a church to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so we're going to be looking uh, again in 1 Peter. And this book, uh, we've kind of entitled it this short title of Pilgrims because the book largely has to do with the fact that Christians in this life are like exiles or like pilgrims who we don't really belong here. We don't belong on this earth. We don't have people that we belong to here that we actually belong to another place, namely a heavenly home. And so as we're temporarily traveling through this life, we're going to feel the aches and pains of the fact that we don't belong. We have a different set of values and priorities, and we have a different Lord. We have a supreme king that we're following that's not of this world, and his name is Jesus. And so one of the things we're going to see again today, and we're actually going to hear a lot more about throughout the rest of this book, is the fact that as believers, there's going to be a way in which we suffer because of righteousness in this life. That as we seek to live out our Christian faith in this life, there's going to be a particular way that God's people are going to suffer and endure trial simply because we're being faithful to Christ. And so the word that we're going to see, like right as we jump into chapter 3, verse 8, is this word, finally. And that word is translated in other places as the end. And so it really marks kind of a, a threshold moment in this book that seems to kind of be the movement to, for the rest of this book, this letter that Peter writes to, to Christians throughout Asia Minor, current-day Turkey. He's saying, for the rest of my thoughts, I'm going to zoom in on the fact that Christians are going to suffer when they live faithfully for Jesus, that you're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. And so that's where we're going to kind of find ourselves launching in this morning. And so whether you find yourself there now and you can relate to that immediately, maybe you don't, uh, you've never had that experience, just know that there's going to come a point where in subtle, maybe severe ways, you're going to suffer because you're faithful to Jesus Christ, because you don't belong here. It's not the world's job to accept you into its pattern of life. It's certainly not our job nor our pursuit to want to be accepted by the world. So here we have 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, and God's Word says this. We're going to read verses 8 through 17 and then go back and make some observations. God's Word says this. says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So as we go back to the beginning of this text, you know, Peter starts with this, this kind of broad general list of what you might consider fruits of the Spirit of God. So if you've been around the church, you grew up in your Bible at all, like Galatians chapter 5 is kind of the, the famous fruits of the Spirit passage. The love, joy, peace, patience, all that list of spiritual fruit. It's got fruits of the flesh as well. But there's other places in the Bible that list characteristics of the Spirit of God in a person's life. And so we get a short list here, and Peter does it again in Second Peter, his other letter in the, the New Testament. In the first chapter, he goes through this long list of things that should be indicative of the child of God. And so he lists off, we're going to go just real quickly through this list, but all Christians everywhere, and most specifically in this local expression of Christian community, are to have these particular things said about them. And the first one is, is unity of mind, be of the same mind, or be harmonious, play complementary notes. Now, even if you're not a musician, most of the time you can identify if there are two notes that don't go together when somebody sings. Right? So you hear it, and you're like, ah, there's, some, there's something amiss. Like, these two notes actually don't go together. And what it causes you to do is it, it actually repels you away from the music. You're like, ah, turn that off or change it, make the notes match. And that's kind of the picture here. As believers, in the context of Christian community, we're to play notes together in the way we relate to one another that, are, that make us in our, our harmonious chorus in this world that draws people in with a sense of wonder and curiosity, which we'll go back to kind of at the end of this passage. But Peter says, be of the, the same mind, have unity of mind in such a way that it kind of draws people in instead of pushes them away. Be sympathetic, having compassion. Romans twelve fifteen says, rejoice and weep when your family does. First Corinthians twelve twenty six says it this way, if one member suffers, all suffer together. That's the literal translation of this idea of sympathy, is to suffer together. So, in this thing we call the local church, the body of Christ, there's a way in which we're called to, to bear one another's burdens in such a way that we suffer together. When one person suffers, we suffer along with them. When they weep, we weep with them. When they're honored, we rejoice. There's a partnership but this word sympathy really means on the, maybe what you might consider the negative end, to suffer with one another in this life. And I would just say real plainly, just pastorally, don't allow yourself to suffer in silence and suffer alone. Like God, we talk about this all the time. Like God has created every single one of us to need other people. And there's never going to be a moment in your life where you don't need other people in your life. Certainly in seasons of suffering, that is amplified. Like, I need other people. They breathe life into me when it doesn't even feel like I can breathe on my own. When I don't feel like I can sing, I can have other people sing for me and over me. And that's the picture here, that we suffer together in such a way that we can carry one another on, along in this life as we go through various shades of suffering. So unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, love one another with a fondness of a friend. Be tender-hearted, Ephesians 4.32 echoes the same thing. This, it's an interesting word because it actually means 
Oddly enough, the bowels, Philippians 1.8, talks about the bowels of Christ. It's like this place of like deep earnestness within the stomach of a person. So we're to be tenderhearted, compassionate in such a way that because we have been loved much, we love much. There's a depth of affection for people, not an apathy toward those who are struggling, toward those in our lives, toward the world around us. There's a, there's a deep sense of compassion and tenderheartedness to the world. There's a humble mind or estimation. So he, he goes on to say, so have humility of mind. And this, I wrote down these words, I was thinking this week, you know, humility is, and we're going to get there in First Peter chapter 5, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility is the clothing of the believer. It's like part of the new uniform that we put on in Christ. You've been saved by grace through faith, and so part of what we put on after putting off the old way of life is we put on the humility of Christ. We see that in Philippians chapter 2. But there's, an, there's in humility, humility of mind, there's an estimation and an elevation. So let me explain what I mean. There's a right estimation of yourself in light of who God is, as part of humility. So we estimate, we think of ourselves rightly in, who, in light of who God is, but we also elevate other people. So Philippians 2 talks about, consider one another as more important than yourself. So there's a right estimation and elevation of other people. 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we think about this uniform. I don't know if you had the, it was a, as a Chicago Bulls fan in the 90s. I grew up in Illinois. Was a huge Michael Jordan fan. Saw them in their heyday. And when he put on a Washington Wizards jersey, I was like, no way. This is not right. This is the wrong uniform. Like, what are we doing? Like, Mike, you gotta hang it up. We can't put on another uniform. That's a little bit like what this is like. Like, put on the clothes of humility because the clothing of pride doesn't, it doesn't match who you are in Christ. Like, don't put that on. Someone's going to look at that and be like, this is inconsistent with what you say you believe. But instead, clothe yourselves with humility. Now, when I think about this short list, and I'm going to say these just last couple of things before we journey on so I don't spend all my time here. But when I think about my own life, like, I can reach quick consensus and agreement and unity with myself. Anybody relate to that? Like as I'm talking to myself, I can, I can reach consensus pretty easily within my own mind and my own heart. You can probably relate. I don't know of anyone who's more sympathetic to me than I am. I'm remarkably friendly and tender and considerate of my own needs. Anybody relate to that? What's my point? It's like all of these, all of these things, all of these things that are being that are being played out, they're they're being played out and forged in the context of community and relationships. It's okay, we're not just going to ignore it. So, so the po- the point being is that every single thing is being talked about here: tenderness, compassion, unity, humility. All of those things are forged in the context of relationships. Those things are not challenged just by yourself. And so the, the godly characteristics and behavior that we're being pointed to happen in the context of biblical community. So as a pastoral team, you're working t- together in relationship as a, as a team of leaders takes more work, more time, more effort than working alone. Our pursuit of unity is tested as we lead in community. 
in your life group. You probably have this experience. I know I have because we end up spending time with people that without Christ, we probably just wouldn't be with. Like we wouldn't hang out with because we're different. It's okay to acknowledge that. But that's part of the Christian life is we begin to, like I'm listening to someone. I can't relate to the experience. I can't relate to how they're processing through it. I don't really understand the emotion. But can I be sympathetic because I love them? Because we both, we have Christ in common. And so because they care, I care about this thing, even though I can't relate to it. And so, but that's challenged in the context of relationship. The closer we walk with other people, the more the likelihood increases of having interpersonal conflict. So what are we going to do? Are we going to walk away? Turn our back on relationships within the family of God because they're hard? Because we, we know we're sinful. We know we're the closer we get to one another, we're going we're gonna to hurt. We're going to sin against one another inevitably. So are we going to seek peace and pursue it, or are we just going to turn away because we deem that to be the, the easier road? But having unity and humility is forged in those moments. And maybe you aren't a natural feeler. Maybe you have a hard time entering in emotionally with others. Affection is hard to come by for you. Will be compelled by the affection of Jesus for you to pray for and grow in being tenderhearted toward other people. Ask God's Spirit to work in you. I would say this as well is that being around other people that are different than you actually cultivates these things, maybe in slower ways. They may not be your natural bent to be compassionate, but you get around compassionate people, you know what happens? Is it begins to warm your heart in ways that just left to yourself it will not. Let me give you an example. So we had a prayer meeting a couple weeks ago, and it was me and three ladies in the body. It was a sweet time. Like we prayed together. One of the things that happened, like within five minutes, I won't point them out by name, but within, within a few minutes, a couple of, the, of my sisters started crying in their prayers. Now, I don't say that to minimize what happened, but, but because I'm surrounded by women, I was somewhat prepared. But I, but I don't say that joke because, because really the significance of it, the reason I chose to share it this morning is there's something really, really good about being surrounded by people that do what you don't do. That cry when emotion is good. Like it's, it's really good to hear someone be emotional in ways that you won't naturally be. Why? Because it reminds you of the significance of the moment of praying before God or being touched by the fact that someone's praying in Spanish and it really affects you, and that was one of the reasons one of, the, one of our sisters was crying. And so there's, there's something in being together, being challenged by the uniqueness of personality and gifts and even emotion that causes us to grow in ways that left to ourselves we will not grow. But all these things are forged in the context of relationship. So those, as those who've been called by God and who love Jesus, love one another, all of you, Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. So here's the, the rest of this text is kind of given to, to unpacking what does it mean to, to be a blessing? Like you're called to, to be a blessing. And so central to that is you're going to be a blessing in times where you don't want to be a blessing. As those who suffer for righteousness sake, don't retaliate against those who do you harm. Like don't clap back at people when they speak out against you. Like that's the essence of what's being said here. Don't, but it's not just merely use restraint. Like don't do what you want to do. The picture is I'm calling you to do because there's supernatural life in you to do the very thing that you would never want to do. That in, in return for being reviled, I want you to, to bless. 
In return for someone speaking out against you and mistreating you, I want you to to give them a blessing. Don't merely withhold, but give them something unexpected. Let your conduct be excellent, honorable, different by blessing those who do evil to you. Those who speak evil of you speak blessing over them. This isn't this is all over the New Testament. Certainly in Jesus' teaching to his disciples and to the masses. Luke 6 28. It says, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 1 Corinthians 4, 12, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. I think here it's, it's appropriate for us to feel this sense of like, this is really like this type of response to give blessing when you're dishonored to speak a word of blessing when you're reviled. Like that's alien to this world. It's foreign to this land. But that's the point, isn't it? Isn't that the point of this whole book? Like you are exiles and strangers in this land. And because the God you serve is holy, he's completely different. He's transcendent, different than this world, different than the perspectives of this world. And because you are in him, be different as he is different. That's the point. So people, the world will look at us and be like, what in the world? Like, this is, this is alien to this land. I don't understand you. I don't understand how you can give a blessing when you're mistreated. That is the point. The only explanation is Jesus. And we'll get there in a second because part of that is being ready to give an answer when someone inquires as to the hope that's within you. Like, what is it about you that makes you so foreign to this world? It's Jesus Christ. It's his life within me. He's the whole reason that I have anything different about me than this world. But as an alien, as a foreigner, as an exile in this world, Peter says earlier in chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that the thing in which they slander you, at the return of God, there's going to be a way in which their, their minds, their hearts are turned to the things of God, even unto salvation. And Christians are uniquely positioned to withhold the retaliation someone deserves and give that same person what they don't deserve. Let me say that one more time. Christians, if you're a Christian in this room, you are uniquely positioned to withhold the retaliation someone deserves and give that same person what they don't deserve. That is at the heart of the gospel. You've heard me preach on this before, but it's worth repeating. As we think about the words mercy and grace in the Bible, that's exactly what those two words depict. The mercy of God is God withholding from us, restraining from us what we actually deserve, namely condemnation. The grace of God is God actively pouring out upon us, giving us what we don't deserve. The Christian is uniquely positioned in this life to withhold judgment and retaliation from someone who speaks ill and mistreats them and instead to give them a blessing. That's at the heart of the gospel message, mercy and grace. And Peter says, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Verse 14, but if, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You were called to this. To what? Well, you're called to be a blessing, to obtain a blessing. I've told my kids throughout the years, like we leave them at, with a babysitter or they go to a friend's house. I've uttered this statement countless times, like be like, be a blessing while I'm gone. What does that actually mean? 
Well, let's kind of unpack it a little bit. The psalmist in Psalm 34. So Peter quotes in this part that's probably inset in your Bible. He quotes from Psalm 34. And in part, what is said in Psalm 34 is this. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, what the question is this. Like, hey, you want to love life? You want to see good days? You want to enjoy good days and have good abound in your life, then be a source of blessing. Like let your mouth be a source of blessing. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking to see. Let your mouth be a source of blessing to people. Also let your feet pursue good and seek peace. It seems like the wording here is like an issue of desire and determination. Like passion, like emotion and pursuit. Passion and pursuit. I desire peace and I'm determined and so much as it depends on me to be at peace with all men. That's at least in part what it means to be a blessing. That's Romans 12, 18. Do everything you can so much as it depends on you to be at peace with all men. So when you are a blessing, you will obtain a blessing. There's all sorts of confusion around being a blessing. You know, there's double blessings, there's blessings for this, blessing for that. And I want to clarify maybe what, what the source is of this blessing. I think it's clarified in Psalm 34. You can read the whole thing and maybe see some of it yourself. Firstly, the blessing is in our relationship with God. There's three things I'll observe here just real quickly. Verse 15 of Psalm 34 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. So the first blessing is plainly that God sees you. He particularly sees you in the midst of your suffering for righteousness' sake. So God is omniscient. He knows all things. There's a way in which we could say that God sees everything from beginning to end, right? But there's a unique sight that he has for his people as they suffer for following him. If you've suffered in this life, you know that suffering is inherently isolating. It has the capacity to draw you away from people and to draw you away from God. It's inherently isolating, and it's more acute when you don't think that anybody sees or anybody cares. And present in Psalm 34 is this wonderful picture of the way that God sees his people in the midst of their suffering. In 2 Chronicles 16.9, the same term is used, the eyes of the Lord. The, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. For what? to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. What a sweet promise. God's eyes are scanning the horizon, particularly gazing out at his people, to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Isaiah 66, this is such a powerful passage. 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Pause there for a moment. So all-encompassing, every single thing, the Lord looks out at it and he says, mine. Everything's been created by me, it's for me, it's from me, it's through me, and it's to me. That's essentially what's being declared here. But here's what happens. Look at what happens next in verse 2 of chapter 66 in Isaiah. But this is the one to whom I will look. Like, who does God 
see in a unique way. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. As you think about in this life, going through suffering, suffering for righteousness sake, there's a good reminder nestled in Isaiah 66.2 that God sees you and in particular when you humble yourself before his word. When you're contrite and broken in spirit before him, he is a God who sees you. Not only does God see, but God hears you. Psalm 34, 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Both of these positive promises stand in contrast to the way the face of God is against those who do wickedness. He turns away from them, not to be their deliverer, but to be their judge. So be zealous for what is good. Peter says. And God is near. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, 18 and 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We have no promise of a life free from affliction. In fact, we have the alternative promise to that, that we have a promise that all of those who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God is near and he delivers us out of them all. So Peter says, have no fear of them. Have no fear of the people, nor the troubles that come with those people, nor be troubled about them. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So Christian, if you suffer for doing what is right, first thing is don't, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Don't be troubled. God sees, God hears, and God is near. And there seems to be a picture here. It's like in the midst of things that cause us fear and anxiety, particularly when you suffer for following God, is that fear, that anxiety, the circumstantial trouble can become set apart to you. Like it can, in fact, in a way become Lord to you. It's what drives what you do and the way you react to the world because this thing has become so central and set apart in your mind that it really does control your actions and your perspectives. And it seems like Peter's contrasting that because he says, instead, set Christ apart in your heart as holy. Set him apart. Sanctify him. Let him be Lord. So however you attempted to respond in the midst of your pain, Set apart Jesus as the one who holds sway in your heart. Set him apart as Lord in your heart. Honor Christ with your life. Point to Christ as your hope. And inwardly we honor Christ in our hearts, so outwardly we can honor Christ with our lives. Christ being set apart to us will enable us to be set apart for him. And it's so central to this book that your conduct is is to be aligned with your calling. You're called to be a different people, set apart for God. Let your conduct be congruent with your calling. Let it be honorable and excellent in every way to the world that looks on. And Christ in us enables us to continue in faithful obedience to God and good conscience even when we're slandered, giving blessing for cursing. And being a blessing not only gives us well, getting the blessing not only occurs in the context of our relationship with God, but it, it pushes out publicly, like outwardly toward the world. And they begin to peer in with this curiosity. And you might have even heard this. Like I've heard it maybe a couple times in my life where someone, whether it be in the workplace or just in general, 
They quite literally look at you and be like, why are you like this? Like, I noticed you didn't do this or you did do this. Like, tell me, tell me why. And behind that question is really the question that Peter addresses. Like, what's the reason for the hope that's within you? And the word reason in the Greek is the word apologia, which is where we get apologetics or giving an answer to someone for the faith that we have. Tell me, tell me where it comes from. Why are you like this? Why are you hopeful when this situation is bleak? Why do you honor this person when they dishonor you? Like people would look at us and be like, you're so, you're so peculiar. You're, just kind of, you're kind of strange, right? Like you are kind of alien to this world. I've, I've never quite met someone like you. Well, it's likely because they've never met Jesus. And so the response is then, give them, a, give them an answer for the hope that lies within you. Point them to Jesus. Honor Christ with your life. Don't be fearful. Set him apart in your heart as Lord and point to Christ as your hope. Your answer, your apologetic is Jesus Christ. So be ready to point to him with gentleness and respect and it's good for us to think here Peter puts in God's word, you know, God inspires this word that's present, present with it. It's not just simply give an answer, but do it with gentleness and respect. Most of us probably live long enough to see someone give an answer without gentleness and respect. It seems like some Christians even like, they see it as a badge of honor to be obnoxious about that particular answer they're trying to give. It may not be that the answer is wrong, but they're just obnoxious. They're inconsiderate. They're not sensitive at all to the person they're talking to. What they say might be right theologically, but Peter's concerned about not just the content, but the way in which the content is delivered. He said, do it with gentleness and respect. The picture in, this, in, the, in the Bible about the gospel message, the gospel message being the good news that Jesus Christ has paid for the sins of his people. Like he became sin, this whole cross behind me. Why we have it central is that the gospel declares to us that Jesus became everything that we are, namely un, unrighteous. He became our sin on the cross when he died there. He became our certificate of debt, was nailed to the cross so that as we look to him and his sacrifice, we can be declared righteous. We become everything that we're not, namely righteous. That's the good news. And that message, the simplicity, the peculiarity of that message is foolishness to the world. And for some, it will be like a stench of death. It will be obnoxious because they don't want to hear it. But that doesn't mean that we are to be obnoxious. It doesn't mean that we can be inconsiderate and disrespectful. In fact, we're commanded to do just the opposite. Deal with the world. Give that answer with gentleness and respect. And maybe part of that is just never forgetting that it's only by the grace of God that we are what we are. Amen? It's only by the grace of God that you are what you are. Left to yourself, you would be more of a mess than you are, just like I would. I'd be a trainer. I don't know where I'd be without Jesus. I think it's some of the things I was doing right before I came to faith. Like I was in an alley, like drinking a fifth of hard alcohol right before I came to faith. I don't know where I'd be if Jesus hadn't saved me. No idea. 
So how can I ever be arrogant or obnoxious about the gospel when I realize it's the only thing that's rescued me? It's only by the grace of God that I can be anywhere beyond destroyed in this life and in the life to come. So do with gentleness. Point to Jesus, but point to him. Don't be a stumbling block in addition to the stumbling block of the gospel. And there will be some that turn their back. There'll be some that don't like you, and that's the point of this section. You will suffer for righteousness' sake. Even when you do it with gentleness and respect, there will be some who malign and slander and turn away from you and just be encouraged that ultimately they're turning away from Christ in you. We're going to take communion this morning. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Before we do so, I'm, I'm going to read just a kind of a procession of words because one of the things we find is, and, and Matt, Mike uh, preached on Good Friday, 1 Peter 3.18, which is very closely linked to, to verse 17. Look there with me just for a second as we transition to the Lord's Supper. Verse 17, Peter says, For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So central is like, hey, you're going to suffer for righteousness' sake. It's better that you suffer for doing good, godly behavior, good conscience, than for doing evil. And then he links it. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. And we'll get to the rest next week after that. But as we take the Lord's Supper together. It's a reminder for the family of God. For, if you're a Christian in this room, like we come to a common table because we're rescued by a common Savior. Like none of us can, can claim any innate spiritual advantage over one another. And so we walk like to this table emblematic of the fact that it's only by the grace of God. It's only by the Son of God. It's only by faith in the work of Jesus alone that we've been made a part of the family of God. And so it strips us from any sense of self-reliance or self-righteousness. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if somehow you came into this room and you don't know Jesus Christ, don't take this, this symbol, this emblem of faith in Jesus, thinking that somehow this is going to make you right with God for today or for next week or for your life. There's nothing you can do in this life other than to place your faith in the finished work of Jesus is going to make you right with God. And if you have done that, there's this joyful march we can take to the table to say once again, Jesus, I remember that it's your body like pierced through for me, your blood shed for me that makes, you, makes me right before you. And that's, that's it. That Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. I'm going to read these words. I think we'll have them on the TV. And some of these words come from a psalm from uh, Sovereign Grace did a, an album called Valley of Vision, which is an old Puritan book, and they put some of the prayers to song, and some of these words come from that song. And let me just read them the way I've written them. As we kind of go into a time of reflection and go into a time of communion together. As we could the, the table together, we're reminded that Jesus on the cross, you were abandoned so I could be adopted. Jesus on the cross, you were broken that I might be healed. You were cast off so I could draw near. Jesus on the cross, you became thirsty so 
I could come drink and be satisfied. Jesus, on the cross, you cried out in anguish that I might sing. Jesus, on the cross, you were condemned for me to be forgiven. You knew darkness that I might know light. You wept great tears that mine might be dried. Jesus, on the cross, you were stripped of glory that I might be clothed, namely in your righteousness. Jesus, on the cross, you were crushed by your Father that you might call me your own. Jesus, you were executed so I might be given life. And God, as we come once again to take the bread and the together, the wine together, we can do nothing but be humbled. I suppose it's possible we, we can't be humbled in our sin. But I pray that what happens in this moment is that we would be humbled before you. Uh, you are the one that was cast off so we could draw near. So as we go through this life that is littered with pain and for many even in this moment is littered with struggle um, against sin and struggle against those who persecute us for righteousness sake, I pray that we'd be reminded of the way in which Jesus, you laid aside all your divine privileges. You emptied yourself. You born in the likeness of man. You became a servant, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's through your scourging we're healed. Through your sacrifice, we get forgiveness. It's you being stripped of glory that gives us clothes of righteousness that we'll be clothed in one day as we stand before you. So family, as you, uh, as you take a minute just to reflect and consider ways, maybe you, need to, maybe you need to confess some things and turn in a fresh away from some things in your life. I pray that, that God would allow you to, to do business with him, to draw near to him once more through the, the grace of God, through the blood of Jesus. And as you feel ready, you can come to the table in the front or the back and grab a a piece of cracker and a cup and take them back to your seat and we'll take the elements together here in just a few minutes.